You're listening to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. Your host, Jennifer Hofferber, is an award-winning veteran special educator who shares her experience, knowledge, and passion to help other special educators survive and thrive in this profession. Join her and other guests as they share tips and tricks of the trade for the ever-crazy, completely overwhelming, laugh-so-you-don't-cry profession of being a special education teacher. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Sped Prep Academy podcast. This is episode 35, and I'm your host, Jennifer, and I am a veteran special education teacher, and today just happens to be the last day of kids for my 26th year of teaching. And can I just say that it has been a heck of a school year. However, we were lucky to have had the majority of the year in person, but the stress of the school year in general was something I hope I never have to repeat. The podcast is released every Wednesday morning, so make sure you hit subscribe so you can get your weekly reminder. And if you want to learn more from me, head over to spedprepacademy.com slash resource library, where you can find free forms, checklists, posters, and more specifically designed just for special education teachers. That's spedprepacademy.com slash resource library. Before we get into the show today, I need to remind you that I'll be teaching a session on the Intentional IEP Summer PD Series hosted by the one and only Stephanie DeLessi from Mrs. D's Corner. Stephanie was on this podcast earlier this year, and afterwards she invited me to collaborate on a project with her, and of course I said yes. So I am super excited and extremely proud to be a part of her Summer PD series. The sessions have already began rolling out this week, so you need to hurry up and get signed up so you don't miss out. To get signed up, all you have to do is go to www.spedprepacademy.com spd and click the link to enroll. It's only $77 and you'll get access to 20 mini professional development trainings that will be dripped out to you each week all the way through July. And the sessions include topics like transition, behavior plans, how to include young students in the IEP process, and my session, which is how to write detailed present levels of performance. And if that wasn't enough, she just keeps adding on bonus topics after bonus topics like teacher burnout, choosing IEP goals, and so much more. I would have given anything to have had a series like this back in the day when I first started teaching because when you become a special education teacher, you aren't given a handbook that tells you how to be an effective teacher. You are more or less just given a classroom and left to sink or swim. But thanks to Stephanie, you have just been given a life raft. And if that's how you've been feeling, if you feel like you are in over your head and you're just drowning in paperwork and the overwhelm of the job in general, then I want nothing more than to give you a hand up. So again, that's www.spedprepacademy.com spd. Today's show focuses on AAC, or Augmentative Alternative Communication. And I learned so, so, so much from listening to today's guest, Anne Hartshorn, from Aroha Special Ed. I've been watching her Instagram for some time now, and I could tell that she really knew what she was talking about when it came to AAC. And I, on the other hand, had no experience before this year with it. So I wanted to bring her on to give me and hopefully you the down and dirty basics of getting started using AAC within a resource program. Hey, Anne, welcome to the SPED Prep Academy podcast. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having us. I think it's really cool how I am recording at 4 p.m. on a Saturday, and you are recording at 9 a.m. on a Sunday because we're that far apart. So it's just really cool. So before we get started, would you please tell the listeners about who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Anne Hartshorn, and as you were just saying, I live in New Zealand. I teach special education in a special school setting in New Zealand, and I actually started off my education and my training in Australia, and we lived there for about 19 years, and we came back to New Zealand about four years ago. So I did a Bachelor of Education Special Ed, and that was a four-year degree course, and then after that I did a a one-year post-grad in early years learning. So um, basically I started an early intervention in Queensland, and then I did that for about three years. All of my pracs were basically special school, so self-contained settings. And some of them were early intervention, some were junior classes, but I've always taught at the lower end of primary. So I love teaching children who are autistic. I love teaching children who are learning how to communicate. And that's the field that I sort of find my strength in. And that's where I lead my school. 
Well, I want to add and just let everyone know that I always ask my guests, you know, to share things that they would like to brag about. And Anne said that she loves teaching autistic students and you know, that that's her that's her big um accolades, I guess. And so I just want to say that, you know, that's a wonderful testimony, you know, from one special educator to another. It's just so heartwarming to hear that that, that is your, you know, your brag. You teach autistic kids and you love doing it. And you know, it really speaks to the special educator's heart, and we can't imagine ourselves doing anything else. I just want to say thank you for, for saying that. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, I think uh, my son is autistic as well, so I think that kind of helped to steer me in that direction because I was seeking more information to support um my son, you know, as as he was developing. So I actually was a nurse to start with. So I went, yeah, and I I think it's because I, toward the end of my nursing, I was doing lots of teaching, so teaching adults. But yeah, as I say, when Bronson came along, um, my sort of focus changed and here we are. Well, on today's show, you are going to talk with us about using augmentative alternative communication, also known in the SPED world as AAC. And I'm excited. I, you know, I talked to you about this a little bit. I'm excited to talk with you about it because it's a topic that I have very, very little experience with. And I've only had a handful of students throughout my 26 years of teaching where the students were nonverbal. And this year is the first year that I've had a student that actually has a device. And so my staff and I are, we're just getting our first you know, look at what that looks like. And we're just kind of getting our feet wet with all of this. So I'm I'm so excited to learn from you. But the one thing that I did learn reading through your stuff is that an AAC is not just a device. It's so much more. And so can you just explain exactly what AAC is? Yeah. So as you already mentioned, AAC stands for Augmentative Alternative Communication. So augmentative meaning that as well as speech and alternative meaning in a replacement of speech. That doesn't mean that we don't expect the student to speak at some point. They may well, but they may not. And what we're after is giving them the ability to communicate rather than the emphasis on speech itself. So the systems um, help for expressive language and for receptive language. And they consist of core words and fringe words. And approximately 80% of everything we say are core words, and 20% are fringe words. So if we think of the fringe words as being nouns, everything else we say is a core word, and the core words are critical to teach. So if I was to say, for example, if I saw, I don't know, I might see a ball. So I might say, I see a big red ball. Off that sentence, the only noun is the ball. Everything else I said is a cool word. And if you listen and stop and think about just some basic sentences, have a look around the room and just think of, a, you know, a four, five, six word sentence, I think you'll find that that's the case with the, the, the makeup of that sentence will be 80% and 20%. So the core word emphasis is really, really important. And the reason is because core words are flexible. We can use them for multiple purposes. Whereas a noun is a noun, a ball is a ball. And it doesn't really have any other meaning. But a word like go has can have multiple meanings in different contexts for different functions. There's three different categories of AAC. So there's low-tech, mid-tech, and high-tech. So the low-tech can be anything from real objects that represent language. So, for example, uh, a chip packet might represent food. Um, a ball might represent all toys, through to symbols that can be printed out. Often low-tech is a single sheet that's laminated, or it can be on water-resistant, tear-resistant paper, and they contain symbols. And they can be any any sort of size that you want them to be. They can be A4, or you might call them letter size, um, through to enlarged sizes that we might pop onto teaching frames and use in small group times, or larger ones still that might be big ball ones, or you might have seen them in playgrounds as well. That's a bit of a trend at the moment. I'm not sure exactly how useful they are, but at least there's, there is an availability of symbols. They contain picture symbols just words, or most commonly, a combination of pictures and words. So there's some more robust versions of low-tech as well. 
at my school, we also have a core homepage and fringe strips attached to a board. And every teacher at our school, or every adult, therapist, etc., wears a core board. And in New Zealand, we actually have the rights to print those out. And the importance of that is that when our kids transfer to a different school, the schools in New Zealand will have the same system. So there's consistency across schools. And the consistency that these core boards bring is super important because it means that the children can always communicate no matter which town they move to. So that's that's low tech. Mid tech is things like GoTalk. They are devices that you can program. So you might have the symbol for go and you would have already recorded that word go and the student pushes the symbol and that recorded message will come out. The problem with them is they're very limited as far as the language that you can have because you can only have a maximum I think of 20 Um, but you can change the pages within them so they're a bit more fussy to use. The other type of mid-tech that we talk about is switches. So you might have um, switches that students are using to um, move a cursor, or you might have switches that have one message on, or you might have switches that have a step-by-step. So there might be a sequence of messages that the students will push and the message will be played for them. So those are all mid-tech Um, And then we have, of course, our high-tech, which is what you've got. So the high-tech either comes as an iPad with symbol software in it. So if we think about things like ProLoco to Go, TouchChat, Lamp, and Pod also has an an iPad app as well. Um, Those are the kind of things that you would be using for communication on an iPad. And then we also have speech-generating devices, or SGDs. They come with a specific program within them, and that's all that they are for. So the iPad software, you can still use the iPad um, for YouTube or whatever you're going to do. But the SGDs are specific to that software for communication. The problem with SGDs are they're very, very expensive. They're thousands of dollars. Has your student got an iPad or have they got an SGD? She uses an iPad with LAMP. Mm -hmm. So LAMP is pretty big in our school too. And that's what the majority of my students um, use. But the problem with the high tech is that they um, batteries run out. They're harder to learn for adults because the symbols move around and we can accidentally hit the wrong folder. Then by the time we get back to the folder that we're looking for in the symbol we're looking for, the student's gone. <laughs> We've lost that student. The attention is gone. We've lost the moment. So there's all those sorts of things can go wrong. Um, systems can be erased. They can get bugs. Screens can get damaged iPads can get damaged. Um, There's lots of issues that can go wrong. And then, as we said, the SGDs can be very expensive. But on the bonus side, kids are drawn to the high tech. You can have some students who have minimal to no interest, really, in the low tech forms and pop an iPad in front of them. My goodness, all of a sudden, You've got this attention. Sometimes initially you get a little bit too much attention from the student and they get a bit over overexcited. But that's a, that's a good thing. We can work on that. Um, the, the iPads are relatively cheap these days um, and the software can be a bit pricey, but twice a year there's always 50% off all of the major software. So that's something to, to think about for parents as well. Um, yeah, so they're highly visual and that's the thing that our kids really get. Well, I know we used the, I guess we did a transition from the low tech to the high tech because last year we introduced, right before we had the shutdown, we introduced the, the lamp template to her without the device. So we were just, you know, we sent it home so that the parents could learn, you know, where the, where all the words were and everything. So I guess that would be considered low tech. Yeah, so it's a low-tech version of the high-tech, and it's really critical. And so I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things with the high-tech. Because of all those reasons that we just said, what happens if 
the, the student comes to school and they've left their device at home. What happens if they go home and they've left the device at school? So we need a low-tech version at school and we need a low-tech version at home. At our school, we actually have a low-tech system, as we were saying, the core board and fringe strips attached, and all of our kids start with that system. So all of our families, as soon as they arrive at our school, our families are taught about them, they're taught how to use them, and they get a core board with the fringe sent home. But when a student starts a high-tech system, we take we either print out from online, all of the major software companies have downloads that you can um, print out of the homepage of your software, or you can take a screenshot and print them out yourself. Okay. So then who who determines if if this is needed? You know, I've had a couple of students throughout my career that I really feel would have benefited from something like this, even, even the low-tech or mid-tech, but no one ever recommended that they they start using something like this. So where does that, you know, come into play within the IEP? Who recommends that? Well, typically we'll know from the development of the student and how they present whether they can benefit from an AAC or not, whether that's augmentative or whether it's more obvious when they might need an alternative one. It could come from the family. The family might be the ones who think that their child um, could require something. The teacher can refer to a speech pathologist for the school or the district. Ultimately, you must have a speech pathologist or an assistive technology support person, depending on what um, is required in your area. And that's important because, A, they're the experts and you're going to need their support to help teach the students, whether that's a public funded one or whether it's a private one. And also, you need these people because they need to do the formal assessment and the trials and send away the applications for the funding of the devices. And as we were saying that, you know, we're sitting here saying that iPads are relatively cheap and the software can be a little bit pricey, but not over, you know, not over expensive. But to some families, that's a lot of money still that they simply can't afford. And we don't want to disadvantage any students. And certainly if we're talking about an SGD, they're thousands of dollars. And I mean, very few people can afford to spend thousands of dollars. So you must have the SLTs and the um, assistive technology person involved. So is this something that's deemed like as a last resort? Like if we can't get the student to start talking within a certain period of time, then we will look into AAC? Or is this something that we should just be immediately used to Um, focusing on right from the start? Here's my thing. If we have to wait for assessment and wait for all that process to go through, to go through the trials, then you've got to send it away, then you've got to hope that it's approved and they're not always approved, this can take a long time. And can take from, at my school, we're very fortunate. We have speech language pathologists, we have occupational therapists, physios, et cetera, all at our school. We work with our speech pathologists twice a week, every week. They come into the class and they work with us and they might remove children. So we've got them right there, right from day one when the students arrive to our school. The challenge for a lot of people is it takes a long time on a waiting list to even get to have a speech pathologist come to the school. So even with us at our school, when there's availability, it can take six to six to seven months before the child will actually get a device. You're going to add on many more months if you have to wait for waiting lists to actually get a speech pathologist done and go through all that process. So the answer is we can't afford to wait because time flies so fast and we don't want to disadvantage the children. We want to give them the means to communicate as soon as we possibly can. There's nothing to stop a teacher from using a low-tech system in your classroom. So start straight away. Even if you think they've got a little bit of language, start using it anyway because students, you know, need to be having lots of availability of language to be able to have everything they want to say whenever they want to say it to whoever they want to say. And often that's not the case with our children who are just saying a few words. So they need to have augmented language available to support them. The other challenge we've got is our students who are um, not yet speaking, 
often get very frustrated because they can't get their message across and we have a lot of behavior as a result. And if you can start implementing a low-tech system, you'll get on top of that behavior because you're going to lower anxiety and lower frustration. And the thing is, it takes a long time for a typically developing child to gain language. If you think about a baby, a baby is going to learn their first, the very earliest they would be saying a single word representation would be around the sort of 19 months of age. By about 12 to 18 months, they start to have more words. By the time they're two, they've got around 50 words, and then it speeds up exponentially. But we don't wait for them to have language before we start talking to them. We get down there at eye level and we are and we, who's a beautiful boy? And oh, I see a cat. Oh, look at that cat. Oh, meow. Pussycat, pussycat, I love you. And we do all this wonderful rhyme and we sing and we just shower them with language. And we need to do that for our kids as well. Obviously, we're not talking about treating them as babies, but we need to present them with lots of opportunity for input of language both from our speech and also from the system that they are going to be using because we know that they need to have the input that they are going to be using for the output to be successful. I have never thought of it that way. You know, I guess I just thought that eventually they're just going to start talking and, you know, and sometimes they do. Sometimes they just need a little extra time and they'll pick it up. But I never I never correlated it to the development of a, a baby as, you know, as a student there. And I guess this is this is me de- being naive, but I I guess I always felt like um a system would prevent, you know, natural speech from developing. And that's an error I'm guessing. Yes, yeah. We know that um and your listeners could look up um the research that that sort of supports what you're saying. We know that now that the systems that we use for our students who are not yet speaking support language. They never halt language. They can only help. I see that in my student that she um she'll be listening to some of her um her classmates talking, you know, and they're they're fourth and fifth graders, so they're talking about different crushes and different things that are going on in their world. And she's listening to them. And so I asked her the other day, I said, do you have a crush? And she said, yes. And I said, who's your crush? And so then she used her device and said, mommy, daddy. (laughs) So it was, it was amazing for her to be able to be a part of the, you know, the conversation that was going on with the other students. Oh, that's fabulous to hear. I love hearing stories like that. We had a little breakthrough moment. I'll just digress here. We had a little breakthrough moment. And this is why having a system available and pouring language into these students, really, really, you you never know when they're going to actually start putting out what you've put in. So we had an example of a little boy in my class, and he had been at school for a year wasn't really very interested in the low-tech systems that we had been teaching with him, but we kept doing it anyway. He was in a different class. Came into my class, all he could really access at that point was want and more, so a few single symbols, and really he only did it in an expected context within a, a learning setting. So he wasn't really spontaneously using his language. And then he spent the first term, which is 10 weeks, in my class, gave me nothing, didn't even do the single words want and more that he used to be able to do. And I was like, oh my goodness, went back, talked to the previous teachers. We worked closely with the SLP, the OT, is he in sensory overload? What's happening here? And all of a sudden, after this SLP introduced, LAMP it was, introduced the iPad, he started to get this attention and he started to want to use the language. Unfortunately, his family was still not convinced. They were thinking about this whole business of, is this going to stop him from potentially talking? And they came in, the SLP had been doing coaching with them. They came in the room while we were all doing a fun activity with sensory toys and everything. And he turned around and he looked at his mum 
And he went back to his device. Now, we know that he had been going in and out of folders, exploring and so on. But what we didn't know is that he was actually retaining the information and knew where the concrete memory pathway was for his mum, for that symbol for mum. And when his mum was in the room, and this was not planned, he turned around and he went back to his device and he pushed mum and he turned around and he smiled at her. Well, I can tell you... That family were on board after that, <laughs> and there was tears. Um, it was gorgeous. Oh, so this is awesome. it. We never know. We never know what these kids are actually taking in and when they're actually going to produce this language. That is amazing. So, how long does it take for a child to learn how to use the the device? I'm assuming that it takes the child a lot less time than it would take an adult to learn it. Like, you know, the the teachers and the paraprofessionals and everything. I feel like the the kids are going to pick it up much quicker, but about how long does it take for them to, to actually be able to use it independently? Well, it can take a long time, actually. <laughs> it can take up to, well, that little boy, as I say, he had a whole year of input and then he had another, oh, probably, you know, at least another 12 to 15 weeks before he started spontaneously using that system. So some students will start doing it straight away. It depends. It purely depends on the student. The thing is, don't lose heart and don't stop. (laughs) Once you start with it, keep going. And the reality is initially you may well be doing lots of modeling without getting anything back in return. And that's okay. Just keep going. Often you'll be doing things and you won't even think the student's looking at you or taking it in. But, you know, a lot of our kids use peripheral vision. So they may be, but they certainly will be listening. So keep going. Students who have physical impairment will take even longer before they are going to be able to um, learn how to use the device because they've got to work out their body. They've got to, if they have um, quadriplegia, they've got to, you know, learn how to use and communicate eye gaze. So it depends a lot on on the students' needs. Some of our students who are very overwhelmed with sensory issues, um, you know, there's a lot to sort out so that they can actually attend and they can engage in activities where they're going to want to communicate. So what is my role as a special education teacher who is mostly working with students, you know, in a resource setting? What is my role in helping the child with AAC? First of all, we need to work as a team. We know that no one person can really teach a student to communicate because our students have very complex needs. So we need to work as a team. The minimum of the team will be the student and yourself and the family. The family is critical to this process. So the support assistants in the room, of course, are critical mm-hmm. because they are going to possibly spend more time with the students than what we are, depending on what you know kind of role you have within your setting. So they are really, really critical. Clearly, the SLT is going to be a team member They might be a team member from a distance, though. It could be a consultancy basis, or if you're very lucky like us, you might have some in the school setting. So you need to refer to, do your referral to your speech-language pathologist. Look at what are the other needs that the student's going to have in order to communicate. So you might need to involve an occupational therapist to be able to access what's the best position to access the device, for example. You might need to have some support from an OT to work out what is the best environment to start teaching the student, what kind of sensory environment is the student going to learn in best. Um, You might need a physio involved as well. So what are those immediate needs that the student's going to have? Read what you know about the student from previous teachers, same as you would for any student. What can they already do with a system? Do they have a system? Have they trialed something previously? If they used a low-tech one in the last school but haven't sent it with them, get a copy of that because that's what the student already knows and that's what you want to start with. Um, have So have as much information as 
as you can. Meet with the family or at least have a phone conference or a video conference with the family so you can get as much information about the student as possible. And one of the key things that we want when a student's first learning communication is that we need to know their preferences. So if we think about what are the toys, the actions, what sensory, what people would work best to support the student to engage that attention. In in middle school years, what YouTube clips or TikTok is big at the moment, isn't it? So what TikTok clips um, are they into? Do they like to be in a quiet environment or are they okay in a busy environment? Do they prefer to be inside? Do they like to be outside and moving? Um, Our autistic students uh, really want to know about what's in it for me. Why would I want to touch that thing that you want me to touch? Why? What am I going to gain out of it? And so we need to answer that question for them. And to do that, we would have their preferred activity, their preferred toy, their preferred snack. We try not to use snacks and food too much, but we'd rather go for actions, activities, toys, etc. So if you don't have that information, you need to gain the information. So a preference assessment is important. And document the assessment. So basically, you're just finding out what is it. You might have, for example, you might have five toys. And you might put out those five toys and see what that student goes for first and then remove that. What are they going to go for next? Remove that toy. Then put those two toys in with another set of toys? Do they still go for the same two toys? If they do, then you can start to think the chances are they might be good toys to be using with the student to get their attention and engagement, and then you can provide the language that can support with that activity. So know what your student's going to work for. Sometimes that is incredibly challenging. A lot of our autistic students like to be outside and moving, like on a swing or a slide or a trampoline. So what is it that they're going to like to do? And a lot of them like people games. A lot of them like tickling or um, row your boat type of movement activities. That's more that where they're at. Um, They're movers and groovers. The middle schoolers might like to dance. And as I say, they might like songs. They might like YouTube stories. Um, I've got a student in my class. He really doesn't like a heck of a lot at all. And sometimes we can have real challenges with some of our kids, can't we, where they really don't seem to have much of the way of a preference. But what we did know about this boy is that he had extraordinary challenges with the sensory world and what he really wanted to do was tell people to go away he wanted to leave the classroom space he wanted to be outside so we actually looked at what do we need to teach him where he can actually have some control so we started by teaching him things like know and finish and stop and go as far as exiting a space. It's different and help because those could get his needs met. He wanted to have distance between people. He wanted to go outside. So that's how we actually started teaching him the value of communication. They have to understand what it means for them to use the system. So take baseline data and then we start to model with them. So start the modelling, as we say, either on the low-tech or on the high-tech device and find out what they can currently do. If the student doesn't use any symbols yet, we start modelling at a one-symbol level. So the student might indicate by a gesture or standing up, for example, that they want to go outside. We'd point to the symbol go and we'd say, I think you want to go. The Out of that sentence, we're only pointing to go. Now we're not expecting them to do anything at this point, we're simply showing them on the system and saying the word. When they can consistently do that, we then start to introduce two symbols. So it might be want go. So I'd still be saying, I think you want to go, but this time I'd be pointing to and saying want go. Or on the lamp device, we'd be we'd actually be um, accessing those symbols, want go. So keep combining those When they can do a range of them, then we start to add in three. 
I won't go. So we need to ensure that they can use a range of symbols for a range of different purposes, and that's really important. We need to cover a whole lot of functions of language. It's very easy to get stuck in I want or more, those kind of common goals. But we need to look at a whole range. So we want commenting. We want the student to be asking questions. We want them to be able to protest appropriately. So if we look at go again, so we could say things like, um, we could just use go, we could do way to go. So we're make, giving them a bit of, you know, woo, bit of way to go. We can say, go away. We can say, here we go. We could say, have a go. Or we could say, my go instead of my turn. Or I want go. So we can use that one word go in a whole range of different purpose for a whole range of different purposes. The other thing that we must do is coach the family and coach the support assistants. And hopefully you'll be doing that along with a speech language pathologist. But if not, then do it yourself. Um, really important that everybody understands the purpose and how to go about using the system. And the fact of that we're using modeling, but we're not expecting our student to actually do anything if they do, great, but we're not going to insist that they touch a symbol. So um, we use an I do, we do, you do kind of approach when we do that. If possible, get the family to come into the classroom and observe what we're doing and join in, or at least take some videos of the student. In the past, um, I've actually run before school um, AAC support education groups for parents and we tell them to bring along their sibling you know the siblings of the student and we have some assistants in the playground who um, supervise the siblings and the student and we teach the parents and we support the parents and we coach the parents and the fabulous thing about that is that those parents might be at different points of their journey but they actually become their own support group as well so that's really cool. I was just thinking that how that would be great, you know, to be able to, you know, introduce people who might, you know, need that support from each other who are going through the same kind of things. So that's a neat, a neat thing that you've set up there. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it is fabulous. And, and as we say, because, you know, as we were saying before, it can take time. This is not always an instant fix that they get an iPad system or they get a core board and suddenly they're going to use it. It doesn't always work that way and it can take quite a while before they do start to give back what we put in. So um, it's it's great if they can have other parents who are going through the similar sort of, you know, similar fears, similar anxieties, similar joy, which is fabulous. Obviously, we need to collect data and at our school, we collect Video. We do video and anecdotal rather than tick sheets, but it depends on what is required for your district as well. Where our IEP system is a little bit different here, and our our whole philosophy, I guess, is a little bit more laid back than it is um, elsewhere. We don't have the same sort of legal requirements that many other countries have. We do have laws, obviously, for education and disability and discrimination, and we do have IEPs. But I think a lot of other countries have a lot of conditions placed on when you're writing IEPs and how you write them. So know what is required for your district and write them accordingly. In New Zealand, um, at our school, our, our speech pathologist, for example, would write the goal for the communication. So I wouldn't be expected to write that, but certainly I contribute to it. And then I follow through the goals in the classroom. That's the way it is at, at my building. We have an SLP who, you know, comes and sees our students two or three times a week and she's responsible for their goals. And I just, I just didn't know what my part was in supporting, you know, cause I, did, I don't want to do something wrong. I don't want to, you know, mess the kid up with their learning. So I just feel like I need more training. And that's really why I had you come on today is so that I could, you know, learn for myself what I needed to do for this child. But um, hopefully, you know, everyone will get everyone will be able to learn from what you had to share today. Well, I think the thing is, you know, our job is to be the fun people, you know, not the fun police. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid. You can't do anything wrong. The only way you could really do anything 
wrong, if you like, is if you put your hands on the student. <laughs> Please don't do hand over hand, people. Um, I think in the old days that used to be, we thought from from you know the, a kind per perspective, we thought we were doing the right thing, and you'd pop your hand over and you'd guide that student's hand. We don't do that anymore. Um, hand under hand, if you need to do a physical prompt. And we know with LAMP, Jennifer, when we first start, that is something that they do suggest when we are um, showing the, that concrete pathway for the symbols. But they also talk about removing very quickly once you do it. And it's because we want to make sure we get that concrete pathway correct. LAMP system is a little bit different to the other software systems. So my advice is don't um, do anything from high up in the prompting hierarchy. Start by just simply pointing and saying and gaining that student's attention to what you're doing. And hopefully they will pick up at some point that that's what you're doing. If you need to do a higher level of prompt, move up slowly up that hierarchy. And as I say, if you need to put hand under hand, Make sure you fade that quickly because a lot of our autistic students particularly will become very prompt dependent and that's the last thing we need because they can't be independent in communication if we do that. So um, so that's, that's really important. Get on the floor with them. Get on the trampoline with them. Show enjoyment of the YouTubes or whatever it is you're doing with them. <laughs> And that's, that's the key. Have fun. Over-exaggerate um, your voice. Over-exaggerate your body movements. Do something unexpected. Gain that attention and get them looking at what you're modelling. And then support them. So um, make sure you incorporate wait time. That's really important. And using an expectant pause. A lot of our students take a substantial amount of processing time. It's not infrequent to have them take up to 15 seconds you know that's a long time to sit there and not say anything and as teachers I think sometimes it is for me anyway really hard to keep quiet isn't it um and you know use minimal language use an expectant pause so basically that just means that we're showing through our body language and our tone that we're expecting them to do something and you might gently push the iPad towards them or you might just angle the core board towards them. So they have an idea that you're expecting something and you might be pointing towards where that symbol is and wait. If they don't do it, you do it for them and then just carry on. So that can be really important. And remember that we don't want demands and we don't want to ask a whole lot of questions Questions are for testing. So we don't want to get into a position where we're saying, what do you want? You know, show me, um, you know, which one do you want? What do you want to do? Don't ask questions. Instead of that, turn around and comment what, you, what you're um, demonstrating. Comment on what you can see. But don't test them. That just made me think I have a student who he – it's very verbal. He has no articulation errors. He has no vocabulary errors. He just doesn't talk very often. So like he, he wanted a bag of chips the other day and I caught myself because I wanted to say, what do you say? Or, you know, you know, ask, open the chips, please. And I didn't, I just held off and I, I just, I just let him keep going. And it was probably a good 10 minutes and he kept looking at me and finally he goes, open chips, please. And so, so yeah, I, I, it's taken me a long time to, to, I guess, pick up on that, but definitely let them, you know, supply the language and not always prompt them or question them to, to give it to you. Exactly. And also just what you demonstrated then was some sabotage. Sabotage is great. Don't do it to the point of frustrating the student, but just those little things like, again, I teach juniors, so we might pop their favourite toy up so they can see it, but they can't reach it. And then it just gives them the opportunity. It sets up opportunities to want to communicate. And you can put, you know, Mr. Potato Heads and don't give them, you know, only give them one arm, one leg, and then, oh, no, there's a problem. Uh-oh, need help. You know, <laughs> let's look. <laughs> and you can do all of those kind of fun things. Um, so setting up situations where they, they want to communicate. 
Make sure that we're teaching the student to bring their own system, fetch and carry their own system. It's really important. And also when you have an automatic system, like an iPad, a high tech, make sure that the student is coming to you with the device and not on one side of the room, um, you know, communicating, because that's not communication. They're just saying something out loud, but they have to learn that they need to come to the person they're communicating to. So sometimes that's a step that we sometimes forget a little bit and we, we sort of go to where they are with the device. But make sure you've got someone that can come behind them and just gently prompt them to move toward another person. So just like we used to do in the old days with pecs. So, you know, when you have the the traveling stages in stage two and you'd have that support person who didn't talk, but they just gently prompted them to move towards that person who was holding the item. We have to remember to do a bit of that teaching as well so that the student knows that they have to carry that system. Similarly, when they go, when they leave the classroom, when they go on community outings, make sure they're wearing their device if, if they have straps attached. Um, one of the other things that can be really helpful when we've got students with a um, who have uh, AAC is using a core word approach because sometimes it can be a bit hit and miss with what we're doing. But if we have a core word approach, everybody knows what the focus word of the week is and it can really target the language and can really move forward um, the teaching. So we actually have just started, yay, a whole school (laughs) core word approach. I'm very excited because I've been really promoting this for some time and I've just got um, permission from the principal to start doing it. I've done this kind of approach for years, but um, yeah, we're just starting to do it. We're in the infancy of it. And this is really a trial year where we're just getting used to everybody as a whole school focusing on one word for the week. We all wear the core boards but we don't all use them as much as we should <laughs> or could. That's just like, just like with anything else, you've got your the people who are go-getters and you've got the people who you've got to drag along to get something done. But that's awesome that you've implemented that, that school-wide where you're having that consistency and that um, accountability for everyone to be on the same page. Yeah, and it goes from the principal down, which is very exciting. So, so the the core word approach we use the universal core vocabulary from Project Core, and um, I think that there might be a link that you can pop in that um, we can that your listeners can go to for that. That's where I take them from. So there's 36 words as a starting point. And that kind of works in nicely in New Zealand. We have a 40-week teaching year and we split that over four terms. So we we sort of wouldn't worry about it too much in the first few weeks. Obviously, we've got all those settling in behaviours going on and then you can start kicking in with the core word. And that's fabulous because you can use that core word across any context all day, every day because they are the core. They're the ones that we're saying the most frequently. And these were researched, um, well-researched symbols that school-aged children would use. They're the most frequently used core words. So, um, yeah, one a week and look for things like your, you know, where is it going to be in the story? Plan how you're going to use it during the day when you're first starting. That's a, a great way of doing it. So how could we talk to your LSAs how or your paras? How can we incorporate this at play? How can we incorporate it in snack? How can we incorporate it in personal care? You know, look at all the different times of day and transitions and start using it. And it's great for people who are new. You can circle that call that core word, if you like, on a low-tech system. Sometimes for people who are just learning, they feel self-conscious um, trying to find that symbol. If they need to circle it, but you know what? It's really good if you can slowly just move along, show the children how you're locating that word because they'll be looking as well. So don't ever worry about that it's taking you a little while. Talk it through. Tell them the process that you're going through while you're looking for that word. And um, yeah, so core word, that's the one way I would suggest is really helpful. Well, and this has been so informational. I, I wish I had crossed paths with you a long time ago, because, you know, teaching resource is so different than teaching um, 
in a self-contained program like what you have, but I do have those kids that come into my building who need things like this. So I'm so excited to be able to share this with my listeners. I'm, I think that it's going to be very beneficial to them as well. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's been great fun talking to you. Can you share where the listeners can find you and they can learn more from you? Sure. Um, I have a website and there's lots of information available on that website to do with AAC and to do with preference assessments. So uh, it is Aroha Special Ed. So it's A-R-O-H-A. So if you think of Aloha, take the L out, put the R in. (laughs) Aroha in Māori is, um, it means love, care, respect, support. So um, that's why I came up with the title. <laughs> and, Aroha. I, actually, I used to, I thought for a while that you lived in Hawaii because of the Aroha, but I like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I have a website and I have, um, I'm under Instagram for the same name, Aroha Special Ed, and I have TPT. And yeah, I'm only dabbling in TPT, I have to say, but uh, there is a free product there that could help um, some of your listeners if they wanted to. It's an adapted book and it's um, for the core word like. So they're free to, um, to download. So help yourself. Okay. Well, thank you so much for spending your morning with me. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you for sticking with me until the end. I can tell just by listening to this show that you are just as dedicated to the field of special education as I am, and you want to grow into an amazing educator, and I'm here for it. I'm here for you, and I am so thrilled to be able to share all of my wisdom of being a veteran SPED teacher on the SPED Prep Academy podcast. If you are enjoying the show and want to share it with your friends, go ahead and screenshot an image of your favorite episode and tag me on Instagram. You can also subscribe to the show and leave a review. They give an instant boost to my ego and help others find the show as well. And I'd love it if you'd join us in the private Sped Prep Academy Facebook community. We are just getting started, but it's a safe space where special educators and related service providers can talk shop. If you liked what you heard today and realized you found your Sped soulmate, Please subscribe and then head over to spedprepacademy.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs. Go out and have an amazing day and I'll catch you on the next episode.